What if I told you that this is a podcast called Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, and Something Brewed, and that each week, I, Andrew Pytel, and me, Nick Lancaster, discussed albums old, new, new, and then we brought on a guest and borrowed something from their collection. At the end of the day, we cracked a beer and discussed. Let's get started. Welcome back to uh, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something brewed. Uh, we're excited to be back for another week. Um, today, uh, I'm going to kick us off with something old, and I'd like to talk about the album Is This It by The Strokes. Now, if you're at, uh, if you're at home listening to this, uh, you can play a game with uh, all your friends and just go ahead, I don't know, get a bingo card, do whatever you need to, and... Uh, just mark it off every time I say this is it instead of is this it for the album name because that's going to happen 100% of the time. Yeah, we had a hard lead up week because Nick was very surprised that I'd pick Michael Jackson for something old, but <laughs> I guess, you know, another week, another week. <laughs> so is this it is the debut studio album of what would might be considered a, a garage rock revival band, The Strokes. Uh, very influential to me in, in, in albums that I liked, really helped me get into rock music, you could say. A um, couple of the singles are very famous, usually pretty well recognized. But uh, So when you sit down for the first time, and if you're in the U.S., you take out this album, and it's this wacky, sort of psychedelic blue and orange cover art, you've already experience something different than the way it was meant to be. And this is stuff that I've learned throughout the years as we're looking at it. This album, Is This It, featuring Someday and Last Night, which are the most popular songs, had a very different album art in its inception. So it was, I think of it very much as, as an American rock album, which is technically speaking true, but it was originally released in Australia and in almost every market but the U.S., there's a very provocative sort of leather-gloved uh, female posterior album art that they deemed not acceptable for U.S. artists or audiences. Different times. It was a different time. Different time. 16 years ago, I guess. Yeah. We will get to that a little later. Oh. Um, so, uh, kicking off this album, and what, what I love about this, it's only around 37 minutes from cover to cover and it's one of the few things that i own on vinyl and it's one of the very <laughs> few cds that i actually listen to all the way through almost every time i start at the beginning and i end at the end well it's uh, the perfect album to listen to in the car because like if you're driving anywhere you know 15 minutes there 15 minutes back well you just did the whole album mm -hmm. so like you can listen to the whole thing front to back in a single day like in a single car ride and then Honestly, at this point, that's how I listen to most of my music now anyway, is I just pop a CD in and I leave it in for like 
a few days and that's how I, you know, learn mm-hmm. an album. Yeah. And, and so this album kicks off with the the uh, titular song, Is This It, which is a good upbeat sort of sort of rock. It's not really upbeat. It's sort of a mid-register. And, and this is an issue that I have describing the whole album is is we sit in a bit of a middle ground with almost every song. Uh, some tend to be more manic and some are more passive. Now, as, as I understand it, uh, the first two Strokes albums, which are generally regarded to be the best, were when Julian Casablancas, the front man, lead singer, head songwriter, was under the influence of heroin regularly. That's fun. I did not know that tidbit of information. Yeah, it's actually among... Fans of the band, it's pretty well accepted that when Julian got clean, the music got bad. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because, you know, someone should really be rewarded for kicking that shit. But yeah, uh, as it goes down, this album, front to back, has a pretty unique and, uh, like, congruous sound. So the first song, Is This It, is is pretty straightforward. It's a little droning. Uh, it, it's it's the pining of a young man to get to a young girl's apartment and and you know what is what is any song but either a song about a breakup or a song about trying to make a relationship <laughs> but uh as we go on the, the next track the modern age and going forward we really explore some different ideas and you get into the head of a young and Julian, I think what he, what he's stated is that what they tried to do with this album was explore what it's like to be an urban youth. But this band has a bit of a uh, uh, higher lifestyle acclimation than most people. Uh, Julian Casablancas, the frontman, lead singer, guitarist, is the son of a uh, fashion mogul, John Casablancas, and. Him and his friends made a band, and his, his daddy bankrolled it. And by all accounts, it, it shouldn't have been anything worth talking about. It was essentially a gifted product to a wealthy young man. But what ends up happening is that these guys, and I think at this point in time, The Strokes was like a seven-person band. And you listen to it, and it could have easily been four guys who were Maybe a little better at their wait, instruments. Wait, 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 wait. There were seven people in the band? I think it was about seven. You know, it might be six in their manager. In, in the inside, uh, okay. In the inside album art for this, they list every person. I want to say it's at least six. Okay, because, I mean, when I was... I You know, I've had this album in my, uh, like my music library for a little while, mm-hmm. and it was always one of those, I'll get to it eventually mm-hmm. type of albums. But I've, I've heard plenty of the songs either on someone's Pandora station mm-hmm. or, you know, just it just comes up. Like, I've definitely heard Someday before and all oh, those yeah, things. Oh, yeah, you can't escape it. Now, a little further uh, research, it is five. It's five. It's still five guys. Right. And that's, like, three guitarists, a bassist, and a drummer, and a singer, and a backup There's singer. three it's... guitarists in there? Yeah. So, oh. um, now, Julian Casablanca is only credited with vocals, but at least at some point, he started playing his own guitar riffs as the band sort of chopped down throughout the years. Oh, okay, okay. But in, in this early day, and what I really get from this album is a full motion. Uh, it starts off slow, and it sort of picks up. Uh, we get to tr- about halfway through uh, the um, 
the singles really start coming off. And the first quick song we get, and it's not even, you know, this is all a very relaxed album. I, I don't think I completely agree that they captured what it was like to be an urban youth in <laughs> New York or Chicago at the time, because it's pretty easygoing. But uh, the first song that really grabs your attention, I mean, I mean, upon further listening, you know, each song is unique and fun, but they flow together, and then there's a bit of a break between, uh, I want to say it's barely legal, and the intro to a, a very famous intro, uh, Someday, uh, which I actually, I think I'd like to listen to for a second. listening to this i think um the 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 capturing the urban youth part that you're talking about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me i guess the one way that they did capture that was the fact that sonically and musically it's all relatively simple oh from yeah like a production standpoint so it's like it's like a garage rock album mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you listen to the drums, you listen to the guitars and the bass, and none of it is really treated all that much. Well, and that is one of the main criticisms of this band is that it's nothing too special for what had the funding and the studio time to be an extremely highly produced album. But I I think it was Albert Hammond Jr. is one of the main guitarists, and he had a a moderate solo career himself, really fantastic songwriter in his own right. He he talked about how this band tried really hard to, in the studio, with the gift of all of this studio time, to record long live tracks where most of the songs aren't part by part pieced together like a, a standard highly produced rock pop album might be. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, with most... A, a, a lot of you know studio musicians it's like okay record this eight bars mm-hmm. until you get it perfect yes yeah, and then the record first... this next eight bars until you get it perfect mm-hmm. and then they piece the whole thing together later and then suddenly you have a song that like no one played the full duration of the song they just played all right play the verse all right play the chorus here's a bridge here's a guitar solo and then they just sort of frankenstein it all together and that's how a lot of highly produced music goes now. Mm-hmm. And, and something that some great, you know, in the vein of old garage rock bands, something that, that great bands can do is play these long tracks, play live tracks, play the whole song all the way through and and have essentially a, a studio capturing of practically live music, which tends to have more spirit, more soul. It tends to feel more real. Yeah, I mean, even if the drummer loses tempo a little bit, or maybe the bass player flubs a note, Mm -hmm. it has more of a feeling of authenticity to it than, Mm -hmm. you know, something that 
is sort of just pieced together, you know, piecemeal style. Yeah, as a '90s sitcom dad would say, it builds character. <laughs> which uh, which uh, which sitcom '90s dad was that? Oh, all of them. All of them. Um, I'd like to. So, this album is specifically, apparently, uh, apparently, it's it's a pretty important uh, rock album of the time period. This was released in 2001 which was a time where music was moving too poppy and highly produced, and we're still in the heyday of boy bands. And oh, yeah, for sure. The uh, Christina Aguilera's and Britney Spears' early work, which is all very, like, written by songwriting firms and created in a studio. You want to know my unfounded conspiracy theory? I would love to. I think, like, if you listen to all those, like, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys tracks... Uh-huh. Their the production value there, like without their vocals, is kind of like weirdly funky, and I would not be surprised. And this is completely unfounded. I can't prove uh-huh. any of it. I wonder if like Prince just wrote stuff because he was <laughs> bored and he just did it. Because like sometimes I'll like listen to uh-huh. like I don't know Toxic by Britney Spears, mm-hmm. and like I listen to that backbeat and like the the guitar and like the funky stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, what if Prince was just bored? And these are just all the songs that he doesn't want. And he's just like, yeah, sure, pay me a couple million bucks and you can have this. You know, I, that's that's my unfounded <laughs> conspiracy theory about things that Prince does. I mean, I would love if, if it came out that Prince was the uh, <laughs> the original songwriter for, uh, <laughs> for honestly, any any of those, those songs. Um, here's your fun fact about uh, that era of songwriting for the day. Currently, there's a popular act uh, known as Mike Snow with two eyes. I'm sure you've heard something by M-I-I-K-E? them. M-I-I-K-E? Yeah, yeah. I hate that. Yeah, I and mean, that's how it's spelled. But uh, That just looks like an umlaut over nothing. <laughs> yeah, Mike Snow is a... Uh, so these guys, it's actually three guys who worked for a songwriting firm that was responsible for a lot of those early 2000s pop hits. Uh, I, the names kind of run together with me, so it's either you know Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. Um, I believe they wrote at least a few Britney Spears songs. It was an independent firm from, uh, from Europe. And so those guys eventually one day were like, well, if we're going to write the most popular songs, we could just do it ourselves. And they, uh, to come up with a name, uh, there was a guy in like their accounting department named, named Mike Snow. Prince. Yes, oh. named Prince. <laughs> I'm sorry. With two eyes. <laughs> Prince. <laughs> no, it was Mike Snow, and they took Mike Snow's name, and they added an I to it so that they wouldn't get in trouble for taking <laughs> someone's name. They didn't go with Alan Smithy? Yeah, and then they just started writing there. So, is this it by the Strokes? It... <laughs> I'd like to um read a little, uh, an excerpt from a review that The Guardian it gave this album in the future. Not, not immediate release, but looking back on it. The Guardian in 2007 said about Is This It that it was probably the most important rock album of the past 10 years. It prized the zeitgeist away from new metal and restored the preeminence of rattling neo-new wave and was the chief catalyzing influence on the Arctic Monkeys. Now, a lot of that is extra words to fill an article, but, but when it comes down to it, those are, it's a big compliment. Um, and I really see it. You, it's easy to forget that 
this is the time period where pop is really reigning king. It's hard to get garage rock on the radio. Right, and especially because it seems like the two things that were big at the time were obviously pop, but also I feel like, yeah, like you said, the new metal, you know, mid-90s, you had corn, you had stained you had system of a down you mm-hmm. had uh slipknot all that kind of stuff yeah. was there and present but wasn't gaining like the mainstream so like the counterculture music at the time was this new metal and then the popular music at the time was sleek produced pop music yeah so like garage rock kind of had an identity crisis that the strokes sort of filled in at like the, the just the right time mm-hmm and in this era, uh, I mean, we're talking uh, Weezer released the Green Album, which was popular. I mean, it went platinum, but it's not exactly one of the best known Weezer albums. And so that's one of the closest bands that like, sonically I have to compare to the Strokes in this time period. When you plug the Strokes into your Pandora now, you're going to get the Arctic Monkeys. You're going to get... I mean, probably like the Shins, uh, a few other bands with this sound, but nothing was really radio play heavy at this point. Yeah. And I think what the lasting influence of this album to me is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's two things I value very highly. It is a front-to-back, full-experience album. It is not a collection of singles. I wouldn't say that there's a singer single filler song on the whole thing. Uh, it definitely, to me, it, it feels like one long day in the life of a uh, drugged out rich urban youth, which I guess is the best that they could go for because that's about what Julian knew. Well, yeah, it's him and his buddies recording... You know, the you know you, they practice in their garage and they write all these songs. They just happen to have a very rich father who could bankroll the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And also, I kind of think it's a little bit punk rock of them that they had all of these tools at their disposal in the in the, the big studios, mm-hmm. and they still just churned out a record that easily could have been done with like a bucket full of SM57 mics in, mm-hmm. like, someone's garage. Like, a literal garage. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's more production value to it than that. Yeah. But, like, the fact that they... Where they could have gone and where they did go, mm-hmm. I feel like makes the difference. Now, I do recognize a few um, negative points on this album. Some of the common things that people speak out about. I hear very frequently that every song sounds the same. Which I could, I mean, I could see that. Yeah. To me, it's, I, I, I would say every song sounds similar, but I, I think it's all part of creating like one sound identity for this album. I, I think very clearly you can tell that this is a song from this album. And I think they're all different enough in songwriting and form of the song that I don't think any two songs sound the same. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they're probably using the same drums, the same guitars, the same mm-hmm. effects. You know, his voice sounds sort of uh, like overly compressed and distorted. And that's a big thing is, is, is Julian's vocals through the whole album are pretty uh, altered. Uh, it sounds like 
you know, to the to the to the kids trying to recreate it at home, if you just squeeze your mic really tightly, if you just give just a little pinch between your thumb and your forefinger and cover everything else, you can make yourself kind of sound like Julian Casablanca sounds. That's the magic. Album. That's the pro tip right there. But uh, a friend of mine told me once, and he's in a he's in a band called Paradise Outlaw that plays in in Michigan, and they just. Uh, played the B93 birthday bash up in Grand Rapids. Uh, he told me... Okay, not the festival that I would have pictured that name of a band playing at, but all right. <laughs> yeah, he he told me that sometimes I feel like I can't be a rock star. And then what I do is I look up Julian Casablancas vocals only from Reptilia, the main oh, single off no. the Second Strokes album. <laughs> he says, I listen to that, and then I know... Anybody can be a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) Which, to his credit, is fair. It doesn't sound great, but that's the point is they weren't, you know, Julian's not a star singer. Um, Nobody is a virtuoso in their own right, especially at the beginning here. I think with time, Albert Hammond Jr. went on to be a fantastic guitarist. But Right, I mean, context is also very important because I've seen that kind of stuff before. Where they'll uh, they'll isolate the vocal track, and it's typically a Taylor Swift or a Courtney Love or a you know Beyonce or Britney Spears, and they'll isolate the vocal track and use that as an excuse to mm-hmm. dismiss them as an artist and be like, look, really, they're not that good. And I feel like that's a little misleading because when you're recording something, you don't. It sounds good in context with other instruments and like the the production of it. And like when you take a single thing away like that and then isolate it, yeah, it's not mm-hmm. gonna sound mm-hmm. the greatest because they're they're recording with like a track. I don't know. It's 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 funny to listen to, but I wouldn't I wouldn't use that as a way to dismiss someone as like an artist or a singer. Absolutely. Um I think a good song to get a feel for what we're talking about with, with Julian's vocals would be, you know, let's uh, let's just dive right into the to, to the next big single and listen to I don't know one of the verses of, of Last Night. All right, here is Last Night by The Strokes. That song, last night, 
aside from being one of my karaoke regulars, <laughs> I, I think it's very... Uh, it displays a lot of the characteristics that I really love about this album. Things, And it's... I wish I had more high-level things to say, but it's very embracing in its, its jangly guitar... It's fun songwriting, and it's well-delivered lyrics, um, and a strong, like a strong rhythm section to really bring it all together. The bass is never lacking on this album, and you're never missing a good drum fill. Right. I mean, regardless of how they got into the studio or whatever, you know, you can be funded by your rich dad as much as possible and still suck. Mm-hmm. But these guys are just like a good ass band. If that's them recording all on one take and that's just like their garage rock songs, like they wrote some really fine garage rock sounding mm-hmm. stuff. Like it's solid craftsmanship yeah. and solid songwriting throughout. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be the best garage rock band. And if that's what you want to do, you did a pretty <laughs> damn good job of it. Actually, um, Rolling Stone has Is This It ranked at number 199 of the 500 greatest albums of all time. That's it probably beat out a lot of stuff that I would disagree with, but that's a pretty cool statistic. <laughs> yeah. Um Enemy had uh this as the uh best record of t- the 2000s. The single best record of the 2000s ahead of the Libertines Up the Bracket. And Rolling Stone ranks it as the number two album of the 2000s behind Radiohead's Kid A. Mm, yeah, I can see that. I like. It. <laughs> I'm, I'm a I'm a Radiohead guy over here. Yeah. Um. I think at the end of the day, it's pretty simply written, and that's just fine. Because when I go home, and I want to put something on that I'd like to listen to the whole way through. There's a few albums, but this one definitely stands out at the top. Um, now, just a quick footnote to this whole thing. The U.S. version of Is This It is different than any other markets beyond just the album art that I talked about earlier. Um, there is a song that I just listened to for the first time today. We should include it on the... We'll, we'll include it on the episode and give you guys a little treat. Yeah, I, I, th- I think... I think we're going to give you a little bit of the chorus of this song when we get out of here. So this song is called New York City Cops. And if I remember correctly, the chorus is uh, New York City Cops, uh, they're not too smart. And <laughs> what a bold claims from Julian Casablanca. Yeah, from, yeah there's, here's, your rich, here's your rich son <laughs> saying, fuck the police. But... <laughs> So I realized as, as we were setting this up that our old segment is really just becoming albums released in 2001. And maybe, maybe we'll get a different time period eventually. But uh, that song, New York City Cops, was pulled before the U.S. release of the album because 9-11 changed everything. Well, okay, no. 9-11 changed one song on this album. And they replaced it with the song uh, Getting Started or When It Started. And... Um, <laughs> I don't think you'll disagree with their decision when when you hear it. And uh, we'll be right back.
So I gotta ask for your rating of this album. Hmm. How many albums that were influenced because of 9-11 or were released on 9-11 points would you give? Is this it? I almost said this is it. I almost said it. <laughs> oh, I stopped myself. Oh. So at the end of the day, <laughs> it's a fun album to listen to. And its place in rock history is undisputable. It, yeah, it's it's influential, it's undisputable. And I think looking back at it, if you look back at it fresh, it suffers from others doing what it did better. The Arctic Monkeys being a chief example, the Kings of Leon were very heavily influenced by the garage rock guitar sound. Um, I was going to say Jet. Are they relevant anymore? Is Jet relevant? I named my dog Jet. Oh, well, there you go. They made it. Yeah, they really made it. I named my dog after that band. Um, so Do you say, are you going to be my girl to it, to Jet? What have I told you that is this it? Gets nine albums that were influenced by 9-11 points out of 11. That's distasteful. Well, I would <laughs> 10. 9 out of 10. I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. Hi, it's me, Nick, here. I uh, interrupted the episode. Uh, I'm just going to take a second real quick to pop in and thank everyone who has listened to the show, subscribed to the show, downloaded episodes, told their friends, done all that stuff. It's great. Uh, I've had a lot of people come up and talk to me and say how much they like the show, and that's amazing and way more than I actually expected. So uh, thank you. Um, if you want to keep up with the show, if you want to uh, follow us, see our various social media postings, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, oh, I got to say this right, S-O-S-N-S-B-S-B podcast. I believe that's correct. We'll post out links to it as well, but you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter there. Um, our Facebook page is called Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, Something Brewed. Um, it should be fill in with the autofill feature pretty quick but uh that's the facebook page where you can follow us there uh andrew and i have twitter accounts mine's at nick j lancaster and i believe his is at andrew pytel andrew j pytel one of those but yeah follow us there um we'll post about the show we'll uh, let you know when episodes are live and yeah you know if you could just tell a friend subscribe on itunes um rate the episode leave a review if you want um, that's really our only way of marketing the show right now. And I understand that because it's, you know, two episodes in, you know, it's not that big yet, but we're uh, working on it. And uh, hopefully it'll be something great soon. Uh, thanks. I'll let you get back to the episode.
taking over now for the something new portion of the show. Um, this week, uh, I listened to The Nashville Sound by Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, which I believe came out in June 2017. Um, if you're not familiar with Jason Isbell's career, you kind of need to have a little bit of context here. So Jason Isbell was a former member of the Drive-By Truckers, and I think around 2004 or five, he, I believe it was said that they left on amicable terms, but I'm pretty sure that he got kicked out of the band. And Jason Isbell has very prominently talked about his um, drug and alcohol abuse issues. Um, you can listen to the album uh, Southeastern, which is one of his earlier releases, I want to say 2014, 2015. And he very explicitly talks about some of the things that he's dealt with. So with that in the back of your mind, that's sort of the, 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 the frame of mind that you need to be to listen to this kind of stuff. Um, but the other thing that you have to keep in mind is the fact that on a lot of his songs, Jason is acting as a storyteller. So not every song is going to be 100% reflective of his life or his experiences. He's simply writing from the perspective of these characters in this world that he's created. So I would say that the Nashville sound is about half and half, um, you know, authentic personal stories from Isbel's life. And then the other half are just sort of stories that tend to have a greater meaning to them. But you, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and realize that no, this isn't otherwise this this guy would sound like he just has the saddest life of all time which i don't think is true i think the guy's had some struggles but <laughs> he's not just a sad melancholy dude yeah right off the bat um in the first song last of my kind i like i'll i'll be honest i was i was driving in in my jeep listening to that and and it was it was pulling on my heartstrings oh yeah and that's and i think and he, he alludes to this later on in the album when you get to the reason why it's called the Nashville Sound. And Jason Isbell is part of this renaissance of outlaw country or a, a more alternative country. And there's a line in one of the songs, uh, I believe it's uh, White Man's World, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. he, he talks about, you know, it, it sort of alludes to the fact that he can go independent on his own label and be successful but his wife can't escape the Nashville sound. Like she has to conform to this idea of what Nashville sounds like. And a lot of the time it's very, very produced sort of the type of country that you hear on the radio, which if you listen to that, you know, that's fine. I, I understand it has a purpose, but a lot of it, you know, you could even, there are even like websites that'll statistically point out, that is like 90% of the music is about trucks, beer, Friday nights, foot, just like the same thematic elements. And that's sort of what the Nashville sound has turned into. Yeah, and I, uh, to be honest, when, when you announced this is, well, you announced, you, you told me casually this is the album the you'd be talking about. The smoke coming out of the chimney was black and he knew I had announced. Yeah, yeah, he, <laughs> the smoke changed from black to red, back to black, and then to gray, and I was like, he has decided on country. <laughs> and I was kind of freaked out by that, because I'm not too much of a country man, but listening to this album, I, especially, like, it only took me 
12 bars to realize this wasn't with the name the Nashville Sound I was expecting a a non-ironic very straightforward right. modern country album and it's sure as hell ain't that nope <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the the last of my kind which is the first track on the album uh it evokes these feelings about not belonging um like nostalgia it's sort of a down-tempo song, and uh, throughout, Jason Isbell croons about feeling out of place in the city. And, and I think in this song, this sort of does hearken to that Nashville sound. Like, at least, you know, people from the city are, you know, people who don't get what real American life is like. And to an extent, I understand that. But, you know, even, even in this song where he's kind of tackling these conventional country terms, he digs the knife in a little bit because there's that line and it, it, it seriously took me aback when I heard it, but he says, they laugh at my boots, laugh at my jeans, laugh when they give me amphetamine, leave me alone in a bad part of town 36 hours to come back down. And it's like this this song about, you know, I dance different than them and you can't see the stars in the city. And then it very, very quickly turns into this thing where he didn't fit in but also like he was sort of taken advantage of and this sort of blurs the line between Isbel the songwriter and person and Isbel the storyteller as far as I could tell this song sounds pretty autobiographical but I guess Mm -hmm. we'll never know and I guess that might be the beauty in it yeah and that that line um I actually had a, a a big reaction to that myself uh Laugh at my boots, laugh at my jeans sounds like we're getting a, uh, I swear, it's like a Miley Cyrus lyric, right? <laughs> Who's that girl who showed up in Kicks? It's like, uh, yeah, I look different than you. I dress different than you. It's like a Garth Brooks song almost. And yeah. you expect this chorus to talk about how, but like, I love the country and it's great. And yeah. instead you get a heartbreak. Yeah. And that's. That, that is all over the place on this album, and I think that's why I had such a strong reaction to it and why I really, really like it. Uh, so the next track is the it's called Cumberland Gap, which I did not know what that referred to until I <laughs> looked it up, and it is a real place. It is the uh, narrow pass in the Cumberland Mountains within the Appalachian Mountains. Appalachian, did I say that right? Mm. I say Appalachian, Appalachian, but I think they say Appalachian. Appalachian. All right. Authentic. Hell yeah. Uh, and the it's more of an up-tempo, up-tempo, traditional rock and roll sounding song, but it's still in a minor key, which is pretty Jason Isbell of him to do. Um, and this, this song conversely talks about not being able to escape your hometown because the chorus of the song is maybe the Cumberland Gap swallows you whole. And there are many times throughout the song where he talks about escaping, but then reasons why he can't and mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. hold him back to this place. Again, storyteller versus autobiographical, you don't know. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, we'll play a little bit of Cumberland Gap and uh, you'll, you'll hear what I mean. Down in the mines all day. I know I wanted more than mouths to feed and bills to pay. 
So the song that uh, follows Cumberland Gap is a song called Tupelo, which I learn is the largest city in Lee County, Mississippi, and is also the birthplace of Elvis. Uh, so this this album is sort of like a geographical journey, too, because there's a lot of references to places. And Isbel is from the South, so a lot of these places are probably very near and dear to him. Um, I think Tupelo is more of a character-driven song because the, the opening line uh, talks about not having been this wasted in a long time. And if you're familiar with Isbel's career, um, he's talked very openly about his sobriety and how his wife has helped him out with that. And that's pretty important to him. And uh, actually, there's an interview with him. I think it was in Esquire where he said, uh, it was scary to me because I didn't know if people would recognize that as a character. I didn't know if they would understand that I'm writing from a place that I'm not necessarily in. So this song is definitely from the you know, perspective of a character that Isabel has created. And uh, the, the them- thematically, the song is really about this idea of packing your bags and just going to another place. Mm-hmm. Um. Because the the chorus of the song is that um, there's a girl out there that you know will 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 be with me, and no one that I know is going to follow me there. And then yeah. he gets there, and then it doesn't work out. And so this song is basically like about expectations and you know things not working out in the way that you thought they were going to be. And it's. <laughs> That's really about it. Sometimes Isbel doesn't really give you a conclusion. He doesn't give you, you know, and this is what I meant. I was going to save this for later, but the old quote goes, country music is three chords and the truth. And I think a lot of times we depend on our music to romanticize. We depend on our music to tell a story in a way, they say fiction needs to be realistic, but reality can just happen. Yeah. And I think in this context of, you know, it is country music. It's more Americana. It's definitely oh, yeah. based in its folk roots. You expect, you know, the guy kicking the shit, wearing his Wranglers, riding his truck. You know, it sucks, but but he loves it he's gonna get by and i think jason isbel does a great job of capturing that persona to create a real character where like if it doesn't work out well it didn't work out and that's that yeah he the 400 unit which i didn't really all of his albums prior to this were basically just jason isbel but i'm assuming the 400 unit is his new band and uh, all the songs where you hear like a lot of strings and like a female harmony vocalist, that's his wife, mm-hmm. who was also like a singer, songwriter, musician in her own right. Yeah, Amanda Shires. Yep. And uh, so Jason Isbell kind of has all of these aesthetics of traditional country music. It's all there. Guitars, uh, like lap steel. A bassist named Jimbo. A ba- <laughs> that, that, that's a fact. <laughs> That one's a fact. Oh my god, he actually has a bassist. His name bassist is named Jimbo Hart. That's incredible. That yeah. is the most bassist ass sounding <laughs> name I've ever heard. But he's got Take all it away, the... Jimbo. <laughs> he's got all the aesthetics of a of a traditional country band. 
and he uses that platform to talk about uh some real shit basically Mm -hmm. um so the next song after that and i feel like is one of the main centerpieces of the album is a song called white man's world and okay so I'll, i'll be really really honest here I've been a fan of Jason Isbell for a little while. And <gasps> when <laughs> that's my confessional. When I saw this title track, I was like, okay, well, this could go either one of two ways. And I'm so glad that it went in the way that I had hoped that it was going to. Like, I, I read that and I was like, oh, this is gonna be like it's not my fault that this happened the way it is. Like, I thought it was gonna basically be like I'm a white dude and that's okay. And like, there's stuff that's not in my control. So stop yelling at me. And I was a little worried that that's where it was going to go. And then it didn't. (laughs) And this is like one of my favorite things about Jason Isbell is that he's pretty progressive and forward thinking, or at least he's proven to be open-minded and willing to learn about things that he maybe doesn't understand or changes in the world that are different to him. Um, and I, I really love the way that he narrows the scope of the song because each each verse starts with him talking about um, it's, it's like it's a white man's world in a white man's town, white man's street. Like he narrows the scope from like world all the way up until he's looking in the eyes of a black man. And that's probably one of the lines that hit me the most was when he was looking at a black man and he thought about all those times when in hushed corners he heard racist jokes and didn't do anything about it. Yeah, and that's a... I mean, there's a lot of people who are ready to say, you know, keep politics out of this, keep politics out of that, but when it comes down to it, like, not being racist isn't politics, it's basic human decency, and for some reason it's difficult to bring up. Yeah. especially in the context of a country album and to do it so eloquently and honestly i mean nick you're a big fan and you were surprised by this imagine what the casual listener was taken by i mean in in this field this genre of music tends to be overtly patriotic overtly american overtly like you know, we'll put a boot in your ass type stuff. Yeah, it's the American way. Right. And Isbel takes this idea and he kind of lays it out in front of you and says, no, I'm not putting up with this. Like, in this is the song where he talks about how his wife won't be successful, as successful as he is. Mm-hmm. And, but, but the, the chorus of the song is very uplifting. He basically says, if you're breathing, it's not too late. Like, you can join the fight, and you can change things. And, I mean, it's it's uplifting. It's as uplifting as it can be. Because, like, near the end of the song, he talks about, um, you know, the men upstairs must be on break mm-hmm. or on vacation. And the, really, the only thing that gives him hope is the fire that he sees in his daughter's eyes. And... It's it's a touching song that deals with a lot of heavy stuff, and I was pleasantly surprised at how well like he dealt with it and how progressively thinking he was when he approached it. 
So I think we should definitely play a bit of White Man's World by Jason Isbell and the 400 unit. I'm a white man looking in a black man's eyes Wishing I'd never been one of the guys Who pretended not to hear another white man's joke So the rest of the album, and I don't want to just skip over it because I don't think that there are any just sort of flyover songs that don't deserve recognition because every song on this album has its own personality and lived-in world feel to it. So I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kind of do like a rapid fire around real quick of the last songs and then we can uh, get to our guest. So track five, if we were vampires is a very silly title for a country song that I thought. And then I listened to it and it's probably, you can even hear it in Isbel's voice. It sounds like he's wavering. It sounds like you can hear his lip trembling almost. And the the song is, um, it starts out with him sort of dismissing all of the cliches of a love song. He says, it's not your dress. It's not how you look. You know, it's not it's not even like the intimacy or the sex or anything like that. It, 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 to the to Isbel, the answer is time, and it's knowing that death will happen that makes life worthwhile. So it's sort of a morbid, uplifting message, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, you know, what if we were vampires and we didn't have to worry about death? And he said, we'd laugh at the lovers and their plans. I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Maybe time running out is a gift. And it's it's very somber. But it's also this is like the most type of love song that he can do. Even mm-hmm. like when he's writing these tender ballads and tender songs. And his wife is doing the harmony vocals and playing violin on the whole song. So it's obviously this is not storytelling. This is, you know, it's Bill talking to his wife. It's it's really good, but I can't listen to it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next song is called anxiety. And I guess, I think to me, this might be the weakest track on the album. It's still very good. It's also the longest one. It's like in the six minute, 30 seconds. Yeah. Category. It looks like six fifty-seven. Yeah. It's, it's what, it's a longer song, which is pretty unconventional when the rest of the stuff is usually in the two to three minute. And notably, this is the only co-written song on the album where he is sharing writing credits with his wife. Okay. And so this song, but I did like what he had to say about it and his approach to it because the song is literally about anxiety and how that affects people. And uh, he did an interview with Uproxx and he said that, uh, had I gotten really floral or started using a lot of literary devices after that, I think it would have been a little bit jarring. So the the typical Isbel stuff really isn't present here. He's not using metaphors. He's not, you know, twisting words in a way that are like clever and heartbreaking. He's pretty much straightforward telling you 
this is what anxiety is like and this is how it can affect you and you know this is the stuff that'll happen to you and uh he covers you know the, the various ways that it can physically mentally emotionally and really that's what the song is about it's just a straightforward this is kind of what it's like to have this um following up with that is a song called molotov and this this is like semi-autobiographical from what i've read um and again it's it's uplifting but in a heart-wrenching type of way Uh, It starts out with uh, Jason reminiscing about a time when he was younger, working as a musician in the year of the Tiger 19-something. (laughs) So there's that. Um, But the the chorus explains that he broke a promise to himself, but the promise was to ride ride the throttle till the wheels came off, burn out like a Molotov in the night sky. And so I think he, he touches on this sort of rock and roll star identity, which, you know, might've explained the reason why he inevitably got kicked out of the drive-by truckers and had to get sober. But he broke this promise to himself of being this outlaw, you know, just I'm going to die at the age of 27 type of mentality that I think rock stars at the time can have. But instead he traded his promise for a new one with his wife and daughter and then he says that I hope that she still sees the fire inside of me. <laughs> so it's it's somber and touching, but it, it alludes more to Isbel's life of thinking that this is the way that my life needs to go and this is the way that I'm supposed to do this because I'm a rock star and I'm some 20-year-old idiot and this is how my life has to go. Yeah, and that's a, a balancing act of... I'm going to compromise what I feel I need to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I hope he's saying he hopes his daughter sees the fire inside of him. It's like, okay, so he got sober. He's, he's got a wife. He has a kid, but he still wants his daughter to see him as the rock star and not a suburban dad. Right. He still has that, that rebel type of, thing in him but he's just he's realized that you don't have to just destroy your body and destroy yourself in order to attain that yeah um the next song is uh chaos and clothes which i didn't realize this upon first listen but it's actually dedicated to his friend ryan adams oh yeah yeah so ryan adams and i guess this is the celebrity gossip part of the show. (laughs) But Ryan Adams was married to Mandy Moore and they recently got divorced. And from what I've read, Ryan Adams helped Jason Isbell out with getting sober. And so as a result, the two of them became pretty close friends. And then when the divorce happened, he kind of wrote this song for Ryan Adams. And it, there are references to his career littered throughout the song that I didn't pick up on because I don't really listen to Ryan Adams. But maybe, <laughs> maybe I will now. But uh, I don't know. I like the idea of chaos and clothes just like in the final stages of a marriage and there's just chaos going on in the house and there's clothes on the floor and it's just complete disarray. And as bleak as the song is there's still a sort of uplifting message 
you know, he talks about, um, like, think of all the monsters you've killed. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, yeah, this sucks. But you've, you've pulled through from worse and done fine. Um, kind of filling out the end of the record, uh, Hope the High Road is one of the more overtly political songs on the record that I found. And I don't know, there's a, there's a line where he talks about, like, if you came here for sad and melancholy, then you came to the wrong place. So I don't know if this is, like, Jason Isbell indicating that he's going to move in a different direction of, like, being more positive and political or what it meant. But I, I did like that nod to his own sort of reputation as being the singer, songwriter, sad guy. Well, yeah, he did give us a lot of sad and melancholy on this album. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's sort of ingrained in his nature, and I don't know if that's going away anytime soon. Melancholy and, by nature. Yeah. <laughs> the new hip-hop track he's going to put out. <laughs> so the final song on the album is uh, it's called Something to Love, and it's basically a song that he wrote for his daughter, and him and his wife sing on it pretty much the whole time. And it, it's a message to her to find what she loves and do it till she's gone. And uh, he sort of documents his own life and his own experiences and explained, you know, where he got his passions from. And he implores her to do the same thing. And so the Nashville sound is sort of a whirlwind of emotions because there, there's uplifting moments and there's like devastating moments. But... Overall, it's a great storybook from a great songwriter who really understands the human experience and is very articulate and eloquent in explaining that and making it explainable in a way that just about anybody can understand. And that's why I'm giving it two stars out of ten. No. (laughs) No, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to rate it until we listen to one more clip. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You give me a chance to pick your brain. All right, so I'll give you uh, a little bit of something to love to uh, end the review out, and then we'll be back in a sec to discuss briefly The Nashville Sound by Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit. I hope you find something to love, something to do when you feel like giving up. A song to sing, a tale to tell, something to love, it'll serve you well. I was born in a tiny southern town, I grew up with all my family around. So coming out of that, I have, I mean, this, this, is, this was your review, but what my main takeaway was, and I sort of gave away my uh, my linchpin here, is is that country music is three chords and the truth. What we often get in country music is three chords and a very, very subjective truth and a very romanticized idea of the world. And what I got from this album, and honestly, I'm glad you picked this because I don't think I would have listened to this if you hadn't told me this is what you were reviewing this week was a bit of realism 
that seems to be missing from modern, I mean, obviously country pop, but anything bordering mainstream country. Oh, yeah, for sure. We got real-life struggles. We got... I mean, the first song brought a tear to my eye, and it did not stop from there. Yeah. I mean, he, he does that country thing where he references locations that, if you're from the South, you know about. Yeah. But he doesn't do it in a pandering way where it's like, you know where this place is, right? You you get this reference. Yeah, if, right? you, ha- if you haven't heard Wagon Wheel. Yeah, he, you know, he doesn't west. assume that you're an idiot. He doesn't assume that you don't mm-hmm. know what's going on and you need to be force-fed, like, very, you know, plain. These are lyrics that you will understand even if you're brain dead. He doesn't... There's a phrase that I'm thinking of. He just doesn't assume that his audience is dumb. Yeah, it's um, it's honestly pretty remarkable. The you referred to it as a storybook by a songwriter, which I think is very well put. This is one large structure that is just imparting lessons he's learned, whether on purpose or otherwise, and enough references to his family and his daughter that. You can tell he really wants to emphasize that he has learned. He has learned these things. This is not just, you know, made up in his head. Yeah, he's playing a character, but it's a character that's dealing with things he's had to deal with or things he's seen dealt with. He's not telling you how to deal with the situation, but he's saying, I've been in these situations. I empathize with these situations, and this is what I've learned. And if that's something that helps you, then here you go. So, Nick, as hard as it is to objectively measure a very sad album, (laughs) how many wagon wheels out of (laughs) ten? How many wagon wheels out of ten would you give The Nashville Sound by Jason Isbell? I'm going to give it eight out of ten just because I wish it was longer and there was more material and I just want more and more and more and more. Well, the longing seems appropriate. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back uh, with our special guest, Dan Sagamonian, one of my favorite people in the world. And a very special album he picked for us, and uh, we'll be right back with you. Saying softly to the Savior like a friend They taught me how to make the chords and sing I'm still singing like that great speckled bird I hope you find something to love Something to do when you feel like giving up A song to sing or a tale to tell Something to love, it'll serve you well All right, so we're back, and we have our second guest of the podcast. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He, uh, I've played music with this guy for years. I've known him for a long time. He's been a great, great asset, great 
shoulder to cry on. Uh, I'm always here um, for you. He, uh, he's a Michigan native, but he's living out in Boston right now doing the big boy music thing. <laughs> uh, Dan Sagamonian. Hello, welcome hello. To, welcome to the studio and definitely not over Skype. Thank you, so, <laughs> thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me on the show. Absolutely. We're so glad you would join us. I mean, always. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the Something Borrowed portion of the show involves a guest bringing in an album of their choosing and then a discussion about, upon that. And then we uh, crack a beer at the end of it. So Dan brought in the album Land Animal by the band Bent Knee. Mm. Uh, Dan, I don't know. T- uh, you can kind of lead the conversation here if you would like. Absolutely. Um, we'll we'll be able to just kind of roll with it. Absolutely. So I'll kind of dive right in here. Bent Knee is a band that I was turned on to a couple years ago. They um, are graduates. Uh, We all like went to the same school um, over in Boston and... Oh yes, yeah, some some school in Boston. We we it, we all we're all Berkeley grads, and um, but I they were a couple years older than I was, so I I met a couple of them in passing, but just the coolest people. Uh, so the band was formed in two thousand nine. Uh, they to describe the genre of Bentney is a challenge, but in, in the best of ways. Imagine elements of pop mixed with the most intense like industrial prog rock and like no. avant-garde influence in a way it the, the it's best described as being like music from outer space and <laughs> it really it's 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 otherworldly the sound that they end up getting uh their lead vocalist is incredible actually there's not a every single musician in this band is is gifted in just such a cool way creatively well the, that's yeah yeah well, that I mean, that's sort of a thing that I've noticed with some of the uh, Boston slash Berkeley mm. uh, type of bands that I've listened to. I mean, honestly, you're the one who turned me on to Snarky Puppy, and oh, <laughs> I feel like I'll never repay that debt to you because... Yeah, we're going to have to save Snarky Puppy and Corey Henry for oh another my God. Like, oh, full like, episode. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I'm going to put a pin in this yes. little sidebar. We'll Andrew and I later. saw Corey Henry at our workplace, and it was... what. Oh my Magical. god! I've it was. Been I think Nick and I. Corey Henry songs for the last like three months. He's amazing. Oh my yeah. god! He oh, gave so us like... a nine-minute version of "Party Like It's 1999." <laughs> oh yeah, it I've never so been good. the same. Oh, my god. It was. It was going to church basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Ah, uh, that's that's such a. I mean, he spent his a majority of his life just playing organ in his church. That's like yeah. where he comes from. And it's just, yeah, he's like a legit gospel artist. All right, that's he right. Is. We're having Dan back on for the Corey Henry episode. <laughs> oh, my God, please. Oh, my God. Corey Henry's the ultimate get. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of what I've noticed with these Boston sort of Berkeley College bands is that mm. there's no weak link musically. They're all very gifted at what they do, and it's, like, compositionally very interesting, and that's what I've noticed with a lot of these songs on this album. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's... It, it, it's interesting. It's um, I guess to play music in in Boston, and I, I guess I see this also in New York. You get people from all these different musical backgrounds, all these different personal backgrounds, and at the end of the day, when you kind of combine that bizarre random pile of who these people are and where they come from, mm-hmm. if you do it in the right way, and they're all that you know, you get like an open-minded group of musicians together. The end product is just 
so incredibly unique in such a cool way. You get so many different influences. Like with Snarky Puppy, like yes, it's 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 R and B and it's soul and it's jazz and it's blues and it's influences from all around the world. You you name the country, they've got it. You know, um, and that's kind of their shtick. And in Bent Knee, you you have all these different genres within the same song more often than not you have these different sections and it'll go from like with land animal it's interesting it starts with um it starts with this kind of like really almost like a hard rock kind of a sound you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then toward the end of the song you're in this like like very consonant very bright section it wouldn't sound out of place on a coldplay album sung by somebody else you know it's interesting <laughs> it's the way that they they view what's possible within their music and the way that they can just kind of dip in and out of these different pools is inspiring it's so cool yeah this is i mean in in a sense this is sort of the the queen archetype right mm. this is a band of trained musicians going and doing something that is not exactly fitting the mold of what's being done right now absolutely oh, using, it's it's very unconventional absolutely it's, strict and traditional training used to create something completely different. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I want to say it's the album before this. It might be two before Um, it's their It's their album. I think it's called uh, shiny eyed babies. Yeah. That is two albums prior The two albums prior. And so they, the, the album starts off with this again, like very consonant, like almost like, happy kind of soulful song and it's got a very like bright melody and the next song is just the lead singer courtney swain just 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 belting this crazy note over these epic like apocalyptic guitar sounds (laughs) and it's just like if you're not expecting it you find yourself in that moment you're just like what the what the fuck left turn did i just take but in the coolest way you know you don't find that oh yeah yeah oh man it's I'm, I'm, yeah. Yes, they're phenomenal. I mean, so you told me about this album, and I, I went to listen to it, and the first track, Terror Bird, yes. was <laughs> one, an amazing name for a song, mm-hmm. uh, maybe like the airplane for a movie villain. Yep. But it's uh, a villain for an airplane movie. A villain for. <laughs> <laughs> but. But yeah, that's that's like one of the first things that I noticed upon listening to it. Is like mm-hmm. it starts out in one way, and then out of nowhere it takes a hard left turn, and the tempo mm-hmm. changes, and the time signature changes, yeah, and it does yeah. this this other thing. But it never really feels forced. It never really right. feels, you know, right. we're just doing this because we can. Like yes. it it has meaning. It's not just we're doing it because we're music school kids yep. and. We just can do this. Yep. And I, I find that more often than not, and, th- and this is definitely my like personal opinion here and it's completely unfounded and pick it apart if you will. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I find that the more colorful or sometimes, I, yeah, no, I, I guess the more colorful past that a musician has that I, that I run into, the more selective they are with the sounds that they, they choose to convey their ideas and to convey their message and the more that you've experienced, I suppose, in life kind of gives you a much clearer picture of what it is you want to say about whatever it is that's happened to you. And that's really what you're hearing in these albums. I mean, in this, in this album by, by Bentney, you get everything from, you get everything from 
like 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 romance and love and loss mm-hmm. to like things that could be about like just just crazy crazy like trauma from like back in like somebody's life and whether or not that's real I have no idea but you know you also have things you know, like social commentary that they have a song mm-hmm. on the album it's called Holy Ghost and there's there there's a line it's um like she's just talking about like how and I guess this is partially my assumption but the lyrics are um like got to get more glitter, more sex. And then the song goes on and it kind of, it starts to sound like they're getting, like the music is becoming drunk or intoxicated. And it, it the whole thing just kind of reminds me of like being out on the town on like a Friday night. And like, you see like people just like drinking their problems away, you know, or just like not really coping with shit and just getting wasted. And you see these people just having an awful time in the street. And it's kind of like the song kind of conveys that, but to convey it with that kind of clarity um, it's so interesting and really requires a very refined personal viewpoint, you know? And I, I guess when that falls into place, the rest of the music tends to be very, very good at conveying that or helping to convey those messages. Yeah. Um, Holy ghost is actually something I, I really wanted to touch on because yeah. we, we enter the album with a terror bird goes right into hole and it's, it, these uh-huh. two tracks are, it, it's, it's so very experimental that you wonder if that's all this is, is just experimental. Mm. And Holy Ghost begins with what is like a traditionally structured kind of like rock song that then turns into this time signature changing, like Mm. entire feel funk changing. Like, like it's, it's the moment where they sort of break the fourth wall on like, we're not just experimental. We're like, like we know how to do rock and what we're doing is challenging that and actually just tells you that straight up. Yep. Absolutely. And I think I, I think maybe um uh, uh, to to fill everyone else in who maybe hasn't listened to this yet, that'd be a good place to start with a little clip of that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. Good. All right, so here's a clip of Holy Ghost from uh Bent Knees 2017 album Land Animal. So one of the things that really strike or strikes or like struck me when I first heard this album is the way that um, Holy Ghost goes right into Insides In. The, it's the next song on the album after that, and it's it, it's such a it's so interesting because uh, Holy Ghost is very rhythmic, like you guys were both saying. Like it, there's you know metric modulation, and it kind of comes off as a more traditional rock song at, at certain points in the in the tune, you know. And then mm-hmm. you get to insides in and it, it, everything else dies down and it just opens space and they introduce this theme, this melody. And it's like, uh, what is it? It's like, Ooh, and it's like haunting, you know, and it's, it, it's such a stark comparison to the previous song, but it blends mm-hmm. so well from one, from one to the next. And it, that, that just kind of comes with that vision that we kind of touched on a moment ago, the way that these people, these musicians are able to consider what it is they want to say and then make it happen so, so perfectly, so clearly. 
Nice. Um, so moving forward, I, uh, I, I kind of want to know, like, mm-hmm. what, what do you find to be like the big, the big takeaway from this album? So, so you've picked this mm. as, as the album you wanted to talk about. And yeah. I guess just with, with, with maybe another, you know, specific example, what is something that really hit you hard enough that this is what you want to talk about yeah definitely um i guess i i write music myself and uh-huh. to hear to hear this th- this i i would call this album a work of art i really would to hear this music is is just it's so inspiring to me to see the way that somebody's voice has shaped itself over time. And by, I guess by somebody's, I'm really talking about the group. I, I, you know, they, they each bring their own flavor to this project. You know, it's evident in the way that the music sounds like, you know, there's not one person writing everything. That being said, like the nuggets of the song, I imagine are mostly coming from Courtney or from, uh, from Ben. Um, here's your, here's your fun fact on that. If you didn't know it, Bent knee is actually, a uh, um, Oh, a ben. combination of Ben and Courtney's yep. names. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ben so Knee. Yeah, it's a little That's portmanteau. Incredible. It's so good. Yeah, and it, I um I, I you know I, I just I just learned that last week actually. I it, it cracked me up. Oh my god. And it's it's that kind of creativity, but I guess the the, the thing that strikes me most is just the raw emotion that is conveyed through such an eclectic sound. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really it's really I guess quite that simple for me. It's it's how much power and what a diverse palette of sound and feeling and emotion you could get from all these different influences combined in just the right way with vision. It's it inspires me. It really does. And and again, like the the concepts addressed on the album range from you know having like you know the, talking about social constructs to you know our journey through life. And it's that kind of, I don't know, I, I, I guess like it's the philosophy, it's the, it's the vision, it's the raw power here that I really, I, I gravitate to. Yeah, and I think, um, I, I think another, another important place to maybe uh, grab a, uh, a moment of this album would be from the, uh, the titular song, Land Animal. Oh my God, yes. And I, I, I encourage... I don't know. Did either of you have a chance to, or did you see the music video for it? Oh, I don't. I don't think I had time to check it out. That's but, okay. Uh, we'll definitely uh, after. Well, after you describe it, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll 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 listen to it in post. We'll uh, we'll, en- we'll endorse it regardless. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh hold on. I just watched it and it's great. <laughs> it's great. No, really. It's super so cool. So the the music video starts off with kind of this like these weird images of I think there's like somebody in a forest and it cuts to this this man in a room and he starts to he's in sync with the music of course he starts to draw these these symbols on, on, on these pieces of paper and he oh he ends up opening a portal to some other to some other land and he to ends up, uh, to he his mom's house but it's not really his mom's house the what's up <laughs> So he opens a portal to a, it's a dream, right? To his mom's house, but it's not really his mom's house. It's not really his mom's house. And that's the, that's the twist. That's the takeaway. Really. 
<laughs> it's no, never your mom's so. house if, if you go through a portal. Like, <laughs> that's the rule. It's a loo- It's a rule. It's a law of the universe. If you go through a portal, <laughs> it will never lead school. you home. <laughs> oh, uh, I... So yeah, the video starts off. He's he's kind of he's in a room. He starts to draw. I, th- I think it's like with charcoal. And as he starts to draw on the on the paper, his drawings start to come alive. And it's it, it uses this kind of really cool. I don't quite know if it's CGI, but it's like this animated effect over the video. And then he erases everything and he draws a massive symbol on a piece of paper, like on the wall. And it opens up a portal to like the, these woods, this wooded area. And he starts to dance with this shadowy figure in the woods. And it's just with the music. It's at that point that the music opens up and it just becomes this really warm, like not quite poppy, but just very consonant, very serene musical build. And it then eventually kind of twists its way back into being very chaotic and again, like just the coolest way. So it sounds like they're also a visually based band as well as music. Like they, they definitely have ideas and, you know, a, a message that they're trying to convey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is one of two or three music videos they've released for this album. They're all phenomenal. I just fantastic stuff. All right, Dan. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for giving us like sort of a inside look into this album. Of course. Um, we'll leave you with... What song? What song? Do you, what song should we uh, end this segment with? Oh. Which, uh, what's what's the uh, the one that we're gonna really sell to them and convince them that you should go on mm. Apple Music or Spotify or Pandora or you can go down to the record store, or buy yourself an album, buy it in person, go find it in person. Yeah, they if have you the can, go do that. <laughs> if you can, go find this album at a store, buy a physical copy. Um, if you cannot stream it, they'll be just as grateful either way. I would say go ahead, check out Land Animal, the song itself. It's a great segue into the album, especially if this is your first bent knee experience. But I think I, I can I can tell you right now you're going to love it. Well, then let's send them off with a little bit of that. Fantastic. All right. So this is Land Animal off the album Land Animal by a Bent Knee. All right, and now we're at that point in time in the show where we uh, sit back, crack open that that old glass bottle full of that liquid that we Sometimes crave. it's cans. Sometimes, sometimes it's cans. That was a great sound effect. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this week... Uh, I'm not paying you scale portion, for Foley work. We're, uh, <laughs> we're drinking Sam Adams' Boston Lager. It's really hard not to say that with a Boston accent. I, Boston, did they do that on purpose? I like. Yeah, I read Boston, it and I'm like Boston yeah. Lager, and I was like, oh, they got me to do it. Boston Lager. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. See, I mean. So. Yeah. They got me. They got. So you. I picked. I picked a Boston Lager uh, <laughs> today. <laughs> I thought. I thought it would be nicely appropriate because our uh, our our 
friend of the show, Dan, here. Uh, <laughs> fan favorite, I might say, at this point. Oh, uh, stop it. Living out in Boston, studied at Berkeley, and um, mm. the uh, obviously the band he picked as well, as we talked about, uh, Bent Knee. Uh, they are also based out of Boston, and I figured, why not celebrate the most popular beer brewed in Boston, uh, Boston Lager. Hell yeah. I'll drink to that. Remotely, remote cheers to you fellas. Yeah, remote cheers. Thanks again cheers. for having me on the show. Of course. Cheers, boys. Mm. Ah. That is acceptable. <laughs> that, is, that is the best possible review for this beer. It's just... <laughs> That sure is a lager. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but like, I really want to go just throw some tea over (laughs) a ship. Oh man, into a body of water. It it doesn't matter what body of water it has to be. I just, I imagined you with like a box of Lipton on like the docks, (laughs) just like take that, Britain, just like ah, just tossing it in. I'm looking at the label here, and, uh-huh. like, George Washington is looking back at me. I think that's George Washington. I just realized, well, one, it's Sam Adams. Is but, it? Oh, well. You know, as in Samuel <laughs> Adams. Well, <laughs> but I just realized of, that uh, I know the answer to the math problem on my uh, math professor's chalkboard. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be right back. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I love you. Oh, my God. Are you doing homework? No, that's Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, no, it's, it's a reference. Uh, you know, but in you know what? You know what, though, Nick? Oh God! You know what? It's not your fault. You don't. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It flew directly over my head, that's okay. like a bag of tea <laughs> hurled into the ocean. I'm gonna I'm gonna take over for a second here just to get this out of the way. Let's um, talk about this beer now. We all know yes. the Boston Lager is not a great beer. <laughs> it's it, oh. it's acceptable. We've established. It, you're exactly right. Hey. It is acceptable. Um, I yeah. I'm just gonna just hit hit on this real quick. Yeah. Boston Lager is the flagship beer of um, Samuel Adams, which is a uh, brand. It's the flagship brand of Boston Beer Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Adams. So, well, let's talk about Boston Beer Company as a whole. Sure. If Boston Beer Company was split into the rest of Boston beer and twisted tea mm. instead of being the biggest craft I'm putting that in air quotes if you can't hear it in my voice craft brewery in the country it would be the biggest two craft breweries in the country oh my god it is miles ahead in production of anybody else and this is not a positive thing it shows in the flavor That's um, fair. Boston lager is easy drinking and it is if anything a uh I think a, a transition from domestic American lagers to craft beer. Hmm. You know, it's two shades darker than Pabst, but it presents almost the same flavor profile with like a little bit more caramel, maybe. So we can kind of kiss our Sam Adams endorsement goodbye, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought I was being perfectly fair. <laughs> no, I know. I'm totally kidding. No, you are. No, I, that's fair. I would I just, actually agree. I, I think. Um, I guess looking back, as I kind of was exploring my own like beer palette, that's actually kind of what I did was kind of go from Sam Adams and some of the more tame like I, I guess like loggers that aren't gonna a put you on your ass or b make you taste grass for like three days like when if you're not used to it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that well, is kind of what I did was use it as a transitional beer. 
I think that's the place that a lot of these large-scale faux... So, Boston Brewing Company is technically craft beer. So, that is that is just a fact. It's based on the numbers. There's a lot of... Uh, it's barrel production and a few other things that go into determining that. Um, but I think they fill a similar space to a Leinenkugels or a Shock Top, which are owned by Miller Coors and... AB InBev, respectively, I believe. Mm. And it's this, like, transitionary phase of, like, this is not your regular domestic beer. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. I mean, when I first turned 21, I was like, I'm going to drink craft beer. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go get a shock top. Absolutely. It's a wheat. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fair. What if I told you? It's effective you? branding also at, like, at the end of the day, the way that these, these yeah. companies kind of market their, their stuff, you know? Absolutely. And, and it... To be honest, it fits a good role in the craft beer industry where it, it is a transition level because those those companies don't have like high-end craft for people to land at, so they have to go local. They have to go somewhere. In Michigan, um, Oberon uh, by uh, Bell's Brewing kind of fits that level. of it's, it's a wheat ale. It's approachable, and it's a transition beer. But outside- People who don't like beer like Oberon. That's kind of how it goes okay and what this boston lager does for me is i'm like yeah yeah you know this is this is all right this is an amber lager like this is you know uh, this is better than bush it's there it's definitely there but it's just not enough hmm. and but if it's your first foray into it i think it's fantastic and honestly the i mean the numbers don't lie they sell a shit ton of this <laughs> this is a wildly popular beer and you know what if this is your favorite beer and you were really excited that we're reviewing it i gotta say drink like any decent breweries amber ale and you might realize you're ready for the next step yeah i mean if you're if you're using this as a transitionary type of beer if you're like dipping your toes in craft beer great like try this it's 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 different it's not you know Mm -hmm. your your budweiser your pbr your natty light but it's not far <laughs> enough to be upsetting mm. yeah if you like this try other stuff like it expand your palate like mm-hmm. it'll help you get there and if you do bathe in it or dip your toes in this like regularly please write us because we want to meet you yeah yeah well we're, we're you gonna take that literally uh, i want to hear angry fanboy segment on each podcast after this one each episode after this one (laughs) of someone telling me how fucking wrong i am about boston lager (laughs) and how fucking good boston brewing company is so oh man all you all i need i'll just walk around like the bars at like saturday night with like a fake microphone just be like hey man boston lager sucks what do you got to say about it and i'll just like record the responses (laughs) i'll just send them in it's all gonna be gold Boston Lagos saved my marriage. <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, okay. Oh, it's so real. It hurts. No, I'm. 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 Hopefully, no. That does. That only applies to like one person. <laughs> if Boston Lagos saved your marriage, please write us. Uh, you can get us at s o s n s b s b podcast at gmail dot com. <laughs> so, Dan. Yes. Um. Now that we're having a beer and just unwinding, why don't you tell us a little bit about um about what you're doing right now. Tell us a little bit about your, you know, your music background and what you're up to these days. Sure, sure, sure. 
So, uh, yeah, as Nick kind of alluded to or explicitly stated, whichever you want to go with, at the beginning of the podcast, Nick and I used to be in a band together. It was explicit. It was explicit. Fifth grade level foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, so so Nick and I used to play music back in the day in Michigan. We used to... Um, we used to play with a band called Jen's Remedy and we played around for like quite a while. We played around with these like jam musicians that we kind of found and it it was, I, I would not be the person or the musician I am today without, without you, Nick and without everybody back then. And I just, that's, that band was such a weird, amazing thing. It really was. It, It was like this, like, oh man, it was. I look back on it sometimes and I kind of wonder if I was in this like cosmic fever dream of like music. Like I, I, it was just such a, Oh man, I, I, I miss all you guys as well. Like it's just, it was so much fun. Like you and Caleb and Tim and Nick and oh, it was, it was such a good time. But after I moved, I, uh, I played around a little bit with a couple of different people, did some session work out here and I ended up meeting up with, um, I actually met, I met her on the street, our lead singer of the band I'm in now, which is uh, Stains of a Sunflower. And I met Natalie on the street and I just, we just struck up a conversation, which I don't, I know it's probably been a while since you've seen me do that, Nick, but I don't know if you remember. I I just, I do that a lot. I just talk to strangers. (laughs) I just say hi and just see where the universe takes it. And in this case, well, I met you about 45 minutes ago and I absolutely believe it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we got to hang out, man. Uh, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I, I just, I enjoy, I enjoy meeting new people, but I really, I enjoy getting to know new people. And I am, I count myself as just being one of the luckiest people in the world to have gotten to know Natalie and our, our drummer and manager shade and our guitar player, Alex. Um, they're just the most incredible band family ever I, I love them and um yeah so we've been playing around for just about two years now okay i didn't realize it had been that long um because I, I i follow along you know on uh we're mutual facebook friends mm-hmm. so i'll, I'll kind of keep in touch that way mm-hmm. um i saw that you guys did a small tour uh fairly recently yeah yeah we did a spring break tour um and that that was nine days of, of solid gigging. We had, of course, like a day off here and there, but, um, no, I think it was, I think it was eight gigs over nine days. And, Oh wow. And it was, I, I learned so much. I, I gotta tell you, like, <laughs> and granted, I, I, I want to throw this out there too. I was amazed. We had, it was smooth sailing the whole time with these people. Like it was just, there, were, there was no drama. There was no anything. It was just the four of us in a pickup truck driving around New England for a week and a half, and it was just, it was glorious. It was not. Oh shit! I think I've heard this country song before. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me and these three strangers in a pickup truck. You know, yeah. In but a that's... jar of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's sort of a rare thing, though. I mean, mm. obviously, it wasn't you know like a fifty-two you know, week, you know, like mega tour, right. but still like there, there's a difference between playing a gig and then going home and then playing a gig and then seeing these people for the next eight, nine days or, you know, Definitely. 10 weeks or whatever. Yep. And like the fact that you guys struck that perfect balance of, uh-huh. you know, being in a band and then being able to like be around each other for that long. Uh-huh. That's like, that's, that's pretty special. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way about it. I um, 
sorry, that Boston Lager went down the wrong tube there for a sec. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can no, it go down the right tube? No, that's tube. just the taste. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm really uh, synchronous burns. <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, yeah, I, I feel the same way about it. I I will say on the road, you do learn to carve out you time very effectively. You just you have to. That being said, like I. I spent like ninety five percent of the time like talking to or just like hanging out with with the band and I just yeah it was just it was really just like going on like a family vacation except you don't hate them. Mm. <laughs> well, I uh, I think we're uh, we're getting about ready to wrap it up here. I want to thank you again, Dan, for coming on our show. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you yeah. guys so much for having me. Yeah, what was what was the name of the band that you and Nick were in together? Jen's Remedy. Jen's Remedy. J-E-N-N apostrophe S Remedy. Do you guys have any, you think you have any tracks from that? I don't, I don't, uh. I don't think, th- they were destroyed in the prison fire. <laughs> oh yeah, were they? Uh, there's, there's definitely some YouTube videos uh-huh. that we could probably link on the website and link in the description. Uh, our biggest, the biggest thing that we ever did was that we opened up for the band Parachute. Oh, and, and oh. also that, that guy, Hugo, who had that folk oh, rock yeah. whitewashed cover of 99 Problems, which the world never asked uh-huh. for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did do that, didn't he? He did do that. Well, he did it in his best, like, Alt-J voice. Like, oh, I got 99 Problems, bitch, I want. You know, I, I, I don't know how much time we have left here. I, I, I don't want to feel free. Should I shut up? No, I, I you know, if you've got something you feel passionately about, I want to hear it. Man, okay, so I'm, I met this guy, it. this guy, Hugo. I If he's listening, I think that's his name. Is that his name? I, I'm going to fact check this really quick. Uh, uh, I mean, the band, yeah, that was Hugo. That was the name yeah, of the group. Okay, this guy, I, I met him at this gig, and I was like, God, I don't even know how old we were, Nick. I, I was like 17, 16, maybe. I don't remember. Uh huh. Anyway, I, I walked. The, the, yeah. The the venue that we were at probably didn't want us there because I don't think any of us were twenty one at the time. <laughs> None of us were twenty one. Well, I think Tim may have been. You had water one. bottles full of vodka. <laughs> and we- you had you had guitars with fake pickups that were strapped with coke. Man, man, we <laughs> just we a were bunch of problem makers. We were pretty low maintenance, like in terms of rock and roll, like deba- debauchery. Yeah. We were pretty good, but. Oh yeah, water bottles full of Mountain Dew. <laughs> no, that's actually guitars with closer. fake pickups. Menthol cigarettes and Mountain Dew water bottles is actually pretty pretty oh, spot God. on. Oh God. Anyway, you I got some pixie sticks up your sleeve. <laughs> I, I I see this guy and he's standing like with his entourage of like social media and makeup assistants like somewhere. He was the middle act, but like somehow acted like he was Jay Z himself. Anyway, point being. Oh my God! Yeah. You you remember this, right? Oh God. Your boy. I, I walked up to the guy, and I'm, I again, like I'm like 16 or 17. And I'm just like, oh man, what a cool person who's playing music all the time. Like I want to get to know this guy, so I go up and I start talking to him, and his assistants, like two or three of them, immediately try to like tell me off, like get out of here, like we're prepping for a show, and he's just like, let him ask one question, like he was the Messiah, and I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, like what's your like one tip for me as like a, like an artist starting out. And he, he looks at me and he takes his cowboy hat off and he looks at me, he looks at the hat and he says, the hat is everything. <laughs> I shit you not. And I was just like, I'm looking at him and, and, and in my 16 year old mind, I was like, it is, you know, I gotta get a hat. I gotta now. get a hat. 
so I actually I gotta I, get I a did. fedora. I, went, I bought a glittery purple hat and spray painted it black, which was the dumbest idea ever. And I wore that thing to like two shows before I realized that the hat, a, it still smelled like spray paint, so it gave me fume headaches. But besides that, it did nothing for my music <laughs> career. And that's 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 my Hugo story. But anyway. Oh man, what a cool guy! <laughs> yeah, what a cool dude. Yeah, I don't know if we have any Gen Z. Well, there goes stuff. our Hugo sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, goes. The, we're just cutting, oh, burning no. bridges everywhere. We lost Hugo. No, but Shit. but I will say, uh, the band that I'm in now, Stains of Sunflower, we do have a music video up on our Facebook page. Go ahead, check that out. Um, and yeah, yeah. We can uh, we can end the show with a track from uh, Stains of a Sunflower if that's cool with you. That's totally cool with me. Sounds good. All right, so. We're gonna, for the first time, try. We're gonna feel out an ending segment. So, so bear with us because taglines are sort of an ever-evolving product. And sure. I think what we're gonna try here is is I'm gonna say uh, a lyric from the album Nick reviewed okay. that really stuck with me, and then he's gonna say a, uh, a a a lyric from the album I reviewed that really stuck with him. Okay. And uh, from. The Nashville Sound by Jason Isbell. Mama says God won't give you too much to bear. That might be true in Arkansas, but I'm a long, long way from there. Is this it? Is this it? I'm Andrew J. Pytel. I'm Nick Lancaster. And I'm Dan Sagamonian. This has been... Something old. Something new. And something borrowed. And something brewed. Thanks for joining in. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>